church. And thank you, most of all, for being with us today. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we'll be turning to Ephesians chapter 6 today. Uh, we'll be reading verses 10 through 20 in just a little bit. You can find your place there and, uh, or put a bookmark, and we'll read that in just a few minutes. But first, I want to ask you a question. Uh, which may be very relevant for some of you today, but uh, hopefully not. Um, have you ever been somewhere that you just felt like you didn't belong? I'm sure you have. I think all of us have. Now, depending on your personality and your makeup and your chemistry and all that, um, everybody responds differently to these sorts of scenarios. But, but I think we all can universally agree that it's not the greatest feeling is it? Um, maybe you like being in places that you feel awkward and like you don't belong. But if you do, then hey, I'd, I'd love to support you and, and, and take some tips from you. Because if you're like me and you're an introvert, uh, socially awkward and stricken with every other debilitating social hang up you can suffer, um, then you know what it's like to feel uh, out of place. Now, heck, there, maybe there are fewer places you feel comfortable in, at, in or at than you feel comfortable, you know, you feel uncomfortable more often than you do feel comfortable. But I, but I, think, I think even the most extroverted person, even the most social of butterflies, I, I think there's got to be an environment, at least an environment, where you just didn't feel like you belonged or you don't feel like you belong, you try to avoid it as much as you can or a certain scenario or settings. Now, usually, usually we feel this way about places that we did not choose to go. Isn't it true? That usually we feel like we don't belong places and those are the places that we didn't choose or we don't choose to go. There are places that we were asked to go, places that we were forced to go, places that we were expected or obligated to go. And I'm sure a lot of you are thinking of some places right now, but be careful, you might be sitting close to someone that that place, you know, that, that might be their place, I don't know. Um, but when you get this feeling, it's hard to discern uh, where it's exactly coming from. If you're like me, you try to figure out, you know, why why do I feel this way? And maybe you don't, but I think a lot of us, you know, maybe you wonder, why do I feel that way? And is there a way to get around it? Um, because there are so many factors at play whenever we feel this kind of discomfort. Uh, it, it may be your own emotions. It may be that people around us are making us feel uneasy. And I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I have these experiences where I feel like a magnet trying to approach a connection of the same polarity. You know how that feels when you try to push a positive to a positive? There's just this force, right? There's this force that rejects any connection at all. And, and sometimes I feel like there's this opposing force of energy that causes me to feel awkward and, and out of place. And, 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 and some might say that's all psychology. Uh, regardless of how your minds perceive your surroundings, I think some settings just don't put off an inviting vibe. And, and sometimes maybe you're the only person that feels that way. And maybe you're the, you're the only one that seems like you don't belong. And, and I, I got to think, have any of you, have any of us been there before? You've been to a place before where this kind of feeling overcomes you. And, and I, I know maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, I feel that way right now. And you're making it worse. And, and I hope not. But the reality is that plenty of people come into places like this week after week and they just never feel comfortable. And, and, and the question is, why is that? Maybe the particular gathering uh, is just not doing its job. Maybe it's your conditioning. Maybe it's a mixture of reasons. I don't know. But we've all had the feeling, maybe in a classroom, in a social setting, in a work obligation, or in a family environment, or a family commitment. I, I think the human experience is riddled with these sorts of settings. And sometimes it can be quite the riddle as to why we feel out of place. And 
Whereas other times, it's obvious why we don't want to be there and why we just don't feel like we belong there. And I think the hardest part of growing up for me, and some might wonder if I've grown up, grown up at all, but the hardest part of growing up for me uh, has, been, uh, has been coming to terms with the fact that there's going to be places that you got to go that you're just not going to feel comfortable there and and you're going to feel like a fish out of water and and the way I've come to describe it it's almost like the air in certain places is different and my lungs need something different to breathe and maybe that's just me but maybe you can relate to that kind of experience now some of you maybe you live a pretty charmed life and you only ever go where you really want to go and and if you do God bless you but I'm pretty sure that most of us can relate to this kind of experience. And, and I think that there are some places where people universally can agree this is not our natural habitat, not for anybody. Now, I was gonna do this you know, uh, game show style where I get everybody, give everybody a chance to give me what they think are the most awkward places, the most uninviting places you could possibly be, but we're on a clock today, so I can't do that. But I did kind of come up with a, a, an abridged version. So I couldn't fit the whole chart on the screen because again, space, but number three on my list, this isn't your list, this is my list, but I've got the microphone so I get to do it. This, isn't, this is number three on my list of places that are just not inviting unless you're the one in control of the environment. But if you've ever been on the observing side of things, I think you can all agree and, and, and maybe not, but survey says that number three is courtrooms. Right? I mean, if you're on jury duty, I mean, is there a more awkward place to be? Is there a place where nobody wants to be universally less than in a courtroom? Now, again, if you're in charge of it or if you're on the, you know, the stand side of things, maybe so. But again, and if you're on trial, then Lord help, you don't want to be there. But if you're on jury duty and, you know, we've been there, everybody's been there, you're packed in those church pews, right, shoulder to shoulder, and you're thinking, I don't want to be here. Nobody wants to be here. We can't talk, and we're not supposed to be on our phones, but everybody is on their phones, and all that stuff goes on, right? We've all been there before. Nobody wants to be or wants to spend their time. Sometimes it's literally days of their time hanging out in a courtroom. We just don't feel like we belong there, but I think there's one even more worse than that, and that's doctor's offices, and again, if you're a doctor or nurse, God bless you. I I know it's not your fault, but nobody likes to be in a doctor's office, right? Whether it's in a waiting room or whether it's in the room waiting for someone to come do Lord knows what to you, especially if they ask you to, you know, change your clothes or don't have any clothes on, right? That's not an image that anybody wants in their head right now, right? But that's just reality. That's an awkward place to be. It's an uncomfortable place to be, and I don't think anybody can say, I feel like I belong on that really cold bed, a really cold platform, waiting for someone to come and do whatever they want to do to me. But okay, I think there's an even more awkward, uninviting, no one belongs at this kind of place. And that's public restrooms, right? And especially public restrooms at a big event where it's at least six or seven people in it at one time. And, and Lindsay makes fun of me because I always go in bathrooms when I'm places and, and I'm not, I guess I'm just curious. I don't know. But I don't like, as long as I'm the only person in there, I'm okay. But public restrooms, no one feels comfortable there. Again, nobody feels invited into them. If you do, that's kind of weird, but no one has a good experience. And sometimes, you know, unless they're Chick-fil-A, right, Riley? None of them are clean, right? And I know, I know that people try their best, but Public restrooms, especially at a ball game or a sport event, right? Are there any more nasty places on earth? Especially at some of the places, men, we can relate with the troughs on the side of the wall. It's just like, hey, just go wherever you want to go. I mean, how's that even work? It's kind of, there's, (laughs) I could tell some stories. But anyway, nobody has had an untraumatic experience in a public restroom. So all these places for the average attendee, they're pretty much irredeemable. And I don't mean that 
to be mean toward anybody that, well, nobody works in a public restroom, but the other stuff. I don't mean that to be mean to you, but all these places are just not really inviting. Now, let me ask you this though. Have you ever had a place or been to a place where maybe your feelings about that particular environment changed over time? Where initially you were thinking, don't wanna be here, don't feel good here, don't ever wanna go back here. But after a while, something changed. Now, if you were to ask me 15 years ago, I probably would have put number one, I probably would have tried to convince you that school or classrooms are the most uninviting, most uncomfortable place that I could ever imagine myself being. And, and that was really true for me until I got to college um, and especially uh, in, in grad school. But even in my first days at Little Ryan or and at Gardner-Webb, my social anxieties, my usual social anxieties, they started up, all my inhibitors started firing off. And as time passed though, as time passed, I found my voice, I found my place and I loved it. And places that I felt like I didn't belong became places that I looked forward to going. Now, uh, you know, grad school was intimidating for all the obvious reasons, but I miss it every day because I just found a home there. And, and I'll be honest, even when the subject matter was something that I loved and I'm passionate about, if I had listened to my initial thoughts, I would have never learned to love it and I would have never went back without the persistent encouragement from my family, my own sense of duty to get the education that I needed. I may have never went back after those first awkward, uneasy experiences. And, and I think maybe you can relate to this, that over time you begin to soften up to a place and the people of those places. Maybe there's a family scenario that applies, this applies to a work setting, a social function that you've had these turnaround experiences in. And, and if you can relate, and I'm sure you can, I think you'd agree that the difference maker wasn't so much that the environment became less rigid or less intimidating. The awkward things didn't completely go away our nerves didn't completely settle. What saw you through, what saw us through, what enables us to not just tolerate, but enjoy those settings, whether it was a living room, a boardroom, a break room, a classroom, what tilted the mood for us was that determination began to overpower discouragement. That something in you said, you know what, I've got to make this work. That I can't, you know, I'm married to them or I'm in that family. I can't not do this or I work there and that's where I'm supposed to be. Or, you know, I, I have to attend there and it's just part of my daily activities. Determination overpowered the discouraging environment. Motivation overcame whatever aggravation there was. Something in you motivated you through it. Determination overpowered discouragement. Motivation overcame aggravation. But as I alluded to, sometimes the determination and motivation comes from someone alongside of you that rallies and encourages you. Sometimes it comes from the goals you've set compelling you to push through. And it's in this place, it's in the midst of these places that most of our life plays out. I think all of our life really exists between these forces, between discouragement, aggravation, and apathy, and determination, motivation, and ambition. And there's differences that you can make and there's things you can experience that unless we get over the hurdle of discouragement, aggravation, and the apathetic spirit that we often develop, we will never be able to see where life wants to take us, where God wants to take us. And it requires determination. It requires motivation and ambition to get us over the hurdle. We face these battles in our personal lives, our professional lives, but maybe most importantly and most underestimated is in our spiritual lives. 
Many of us are woefully overlook, or maybe we've never considered, how our spiritual health and well-being is actually contingent on how we respond to the environments that we find ourselves in, how we react to where we ha- find ourselves. It's tempting, and it's so tempting to allow the factors and forces that aggravate us and overwhelm us, that discourage us, and they close in on us. It's tempting to see those signs, those signs as proof that we shouldn't be there and as that we don't belong there, that there's no significance or importance concerning our God-given purpose, the callings on each of our lives. It's so easy to make those connections, isn't it? However, the very opposite may just be true. It could be. And actually, the Bible specifically teaches that. The environment and the settings, the scenarios and the, and the circumstances and struggles that seem to infringe on us and marginalize us and challenge us, that maybe make us retreat or act in negative ways. It's there. It's there that God has placed us and has a unique purpose for us. It's in the environments that seem to marginalize us. It's in the places that you may first feel like I do not belong and that everything in you says I've got to leave and get out of this and never come back. It's in those environments and it's in those scenarios that maybe infringe on you at first and make you feel marginalized. It's there that God has placed you and has a unique purpose for you. While it's become popular to twist the scriptures, and there are plenty of ill-developed interpretations that actually exacerbates the discouragement and aggravation and apathy we face, the Bible, especially the New Testament, the Bible calls upon every Christian to reconsider the attitudes we carry and give ourselves to and begin to see past the shroud of the enemy meant to distract us and disable us and unpurpose us from the kingdom opportunity at hand. If you haven't been with us, we've been in a series called Fiery Darts for the last month. And today is the conclusion of our conversations, a very important conversation that we've had over the last month. Um, Our study has been inspired by a very familiar passage in Ephesians, which we've opened up to today. um, and, And we'll take one last look at today. And I think if there is any one area that the church is inadequately prepared in, it's in an awareness of the enemy's tactics and in our responsiveness or lack thereof to the emotions he triggers and churns within us. Look with me at your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 16, and hear the word of God once more. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
Now, over the past month, we've gotten a lot of help out of this passage and other passages that are connected to it. We've talked about the fiery dart of doubt and learned how to respond to doubt with confidence in God. We've talked about jealousy in comparison and we've learned the secret to contentment. We've talked about fear and we've studied how we might contain, retain our faith no matter how broken our world gets because we have a mighty God. Last week, we were seeing red with a super helpful talk about anger and James showed us the way to grace and peace, how we might admit the cause of anger and embrace the cure that God has provided. All these emotions that set up camp in our hearts, they, are, they only get there because they feel like naturally justified responses to, how, to what life throws at us. But what we've discovered is that this fallen world is under the influence of an opposing force. An enemy who is against the work of redemption God has done in us and is doing in us, we must be on guard according to the Apostle Paul, lest any of these and many more emotions begin to stunt our growth and cause us to stop leveraging our life for God's glory. I feel like any of these can cause us to be dissatisfied with this life, this world, in any of these scenarios and seasons it brings us into. And suddenly we can begin to convince ourselves that there is nothing redeemable about anything or anybody around us. In worst case scenario, the enemy can cause us not just to be down about where we're at and what we're going through, but who we are and what's going on in us. And just the same, we begin to wonder if we are redeemable. Let me ask you, is there anything more antithetical to the Christian faith than this idea of questioning if God can redeem something or someone? If you found yourself recently in this world wondering if there is something redeemable about who may be around you or what may be going on around you, if you ever find yourself wondering if redemption is possible, stop and ask yourself, is there anything more anti-Christian than that for a Christian to be entertaining the idea that redemption might not be possible? Because after all, what did our God do for us? What did our God do for the world? How does our God feel about the world? What did Jesus do in order to redeem the world? Now, regardless, I think we've all been hit and pummeled by the flaming darts that we've talked about today in a general sense. But with specific regard to our faith, the enemy targets every child of God with an arrow meant to discourage us, aggravate us, and create an apathetic spirit within us pertaining to how we feel like we don't belong where God has put us. And there are a number of names that we could come up with, we could name this arrow with, but I think the best description I could come up with is that we've all been hit by the fiery dart of irrelevance. As in, we do not have a relevance wherever God has placed us, that the enemy has convinced us in so many ways that we carry no significance, that where God has put us, there is no relevance whatsoever pertaining to our God-given purpose, that the enemy uses these darts of irrelevance to convince us, to discourage us, to aggravate us what, uh, what we already don't like about the world. It aggravates those things even more with what's going on around us. It's meant to unpurpose us from our God-given mission. Many Christians have already given into this pull. Maybe you have. There is a temptation to every day. Many of us have given into this a long time ago. And as a result, many of us have developed a bitter, cynical, skeptical, dispassionate spirit. And therefore we fail to see that God is indeed at work 
in our lives. And we fail to strive to work for him in his kingdom. And most likely it all began with a little aggravation. It all began with a little discouraging set of circumstances. It all began and one thing led to another and we grew apathetic until we eventually forfeited whatever potential purpose God was willing to give or lead us in. Can you relate? You convinced yourself that you didn't belong there, that you didn't belong anywhere. You convinced yourself that there was too much negativity, too much discouragement, too much working against you. And how could God work through you How could God work for you? How could God have a purpose for you there? So you developed in response, a hard, cynical, skeptical, dispassionate spirit. I think a lot of Christians are right here today. Considering the condition of our world today, it's easy to get here. But did you know that almost every prominent biblical figure rises up and encourages us and calls us back to purpose today. Did you know that there is, if there is one unified message from every biblical author and writer, it's a message of determination, of motivation, of ambition, even in, especially in the presence of a force or forces that make it seem difficult or undesirable for us. Maybe you didn't know, and maybe you've been so insulated by your religion and politics and ideologies that you've convinced yourself, you've convinced yourself that Christianity isn't about serving God with an eternal purpose, but you've convinced yourself that Christianity is really just about an earthly excuse. It gives you an excuse to say, well, hey, I'm on my way out of this world. I've got an escape rope. And maybe you've defined Christianity, you've redefined Christianity rather than it being a purpose for God that God has given you on this earth for eternity. You've redefined Christianity to be an excuse out of serving and making a difference in this world. All because initially you just felt like you didn't belong. You just felt discouraged and who hasn't felt discouraged, but all of us do. You felt aggravated. And after a while that aggravation and discouragement added up and piled up and then you grew dispassionate and apathetic and who could blame you but the scripture says that's not acceptable if the church taught you God help us because that's not a message the Bible teaches but it's from the enemy meant to trap all of our hearts and minds into a place of irrelevance a place of skepticism and cynicism with the ultimate goal of disarming the church of the good it can accomplish it can accomplish for the kingdom of God and as we've been unpurposed we actually have been repurposed to serve a shallow, self-centered agenda that serves no purpose for God or his kingdom. Our particular generation has failed for the lie that unless the church dominates and controls culture, that it ultimately can't make an impact for good. And while some have tried to assimilate the church into culture, because if you can't beat them, why not join them? But both extremes have sent the church on a pathway that has rendered us without effect on greater society and thus the church's impact has decreased and decreased and decreased and if you believe these lies or if you fell for the trap you're convinced that the real version and inspiration behind your faith just isn't relevant anymore and you've shut yourself off from the purpose of God that he's always had for you which turns out is the purpose he's always had for the church In many ways, the church of today has returned to the place where it began its life 2,000 years ago. The place where the voice of the New Testament resonates with the most. I want you to listen to how Paul closes out this passage from verse 17 to 20 and pay attention to some key words that I'll put up here on the screen for you. Pay attention to these words. 
Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful or keeping alert to the end or this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, it, that in it I may speak as boldly, boldly as I ought to speak. These words are very key to why I think Paul is trying to give us here as he closes this passage and this message. The helmet of salvation speaks of keeping our mind focused on what has brought us here and where God wants to take us to. Praying always as in keeping our hearts and minds in sync with God. Again, it's not about our will, but his will being done in us and through us. So the helmet of salvation, praying always, this is directly reminding us we must keep our focus in tune with what God's will is. We must stay alert. We must be watchful or keep alert. That idea of being watchful is stay up all night in case something happens that is significant. Paul says we must, be pers- per- per- we must have perseverance. We must have an endurance about ourselves. And notice he says there in verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains. Now I imagine, you all know, Paul wrote this from prison. If there's ever a place that a Christian shouldn't have been or shouldn't ever be, it's in prison for their faith. Yet Paul, even though he did not belong there and didn't want to be there, Paul realized that that's where God placed him. Maybe it's not where he would have ideally wanted to be. And of course, who would want to be in prison for their faith? But Paul still saw himself on mission for the purpose of God. And he did not allow what was discouraging. Of course, what's more discouraging than being put in jail for your faith? He didn't allow what was discouraging him. And of course he was aggravated because the bad guys were winning, right? He didn't allow what was aggravating him to make him apathetic and dispassionate. He was as passionate as he ever was. He wanted a chance to be bold once more. Paul, if you're bold again, you'll get locked up again. Exactly. It's worth it. Paul is calling us to remember that we must win the battle of our minds that often grows discouraged and aggravated by the world around us. He calls us that we are, tells us that we are ambassadors sent into a world that resists and rejects our message often and rejects our ministry often, misunderstands our ministry and message, yet so desperately it needs what we provide. You see that Paul is calling, Paul is calling us, he's calling us to determine our hearts, motivate ourselves by the kingdom of God's agenda to have a kingdom ambition so that we might be bold and be bright in order for God to use us and make a difference through us. And here's the thing. When we give into irrelevance, skepticism, pessimism, and cynicism, we are saying to God, your cause isn't worth it. It may be worse than that. Your power isn't sufficient for the mess around me. You would never say that to God, would you? But when we have these thoughts and we entertain this idea that, well, we don't belong, we don't have a place, we don't really have a purpose, we're just here until it's over. 
When we give in to that kind of skepticism and cynicism, we are saying to God, your call doesn't work, that your power isn't sufficient. And I think it's important for us to remember the world in which the church got its start. If there was ever a world where in every setting rejected and resisted Christianity, it was the first century Roman empire, which was unchanging for hundreds of years. In some ways, the world has retreated to that similar place, albeit not nearly as destitute, no matter what you may believe or think. The church finds itself in a similar place to where it began its life, in the margins. And it's there. We've always accomplished the most good. I want to show you a passage from 1 Peter that is less metaphorical than Paul has been in this passage, but it's more practical. I want you to listen to Peter's uh, message, uh, his charge to the church in the Roman Empire, a church that was very much in the margins, close, close to falling off the edge. If any generation was ever to believe that their message in ministry was irrelevant, if any group of Christians was to ever give in to discouragement and aggravation and embrace apathy and skepticism, it was Peter's generation. It was Paul's generation. But listen to these sobering words that still hold us accountable today. First Peter 2. Be subject. What does that say? Say those yellow words with me. For the Lord's sake, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. I mean, did he really write this? To emperor as supreme, governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We say that you don't understand, Peter. That's not how it works. There's no justice in Rome. There's no good guys winning in Rome. It's the bad guys that are winning. But Peter says, you're missing the point. For this is the will of God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, as if to get away from it, but allow it to, co to, to continue. But live as servants of God. And here's the big one honor everyone. You know what the Greek word for everyone means? It means everyone. The people you like, the people you don't like, the people you blame for the problems in this world. You know what honor means? See value in them. See dignity in them. Value them like God valued them. And how did he value them? Well, he put Jesus on the cross for them. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's the church. So the brothers and sisters of the church. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And again, Peter, what are you thinking? Honor the emperor. The very emperor that would turn Peter upside down and crucify him. That guy. Why? Peter, what, what, what are you getting at? Servants. Now, let me explain this word. There's three types, three classes of people in ancient Rome. There were the elite that owned everything. There were the slaves that were owned by everyone else. And there were bond servants. Bond servants were not slaves, but they were just a notch above slaves. They had a little bit of freedom, but they were still indebted to practically everyone around them or to the elites around them. So Peter says to servants who had a little bit of freedom, who weren't like slaves, he says, servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good, and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, let me make this very clear. The suffering they were facing is nothing like the suffering that you might be facing or the, or the marginalization that you might be facing. 
the difficulty you might be facing. Now, again, if it is, I, I, you know, they were literally being killed for their faith. Peter says, be mindful of God. That idea of being mindful is that our perspective is that I'm not serving this guy. I'm not serving this earthly institution. I'm here in an earthly place around earthly people, but my job is not given by them. I'm not taking orders from them. I'm not obedient to them for the sake of them, but I'm serving God and God has placed me here and I'm mindful of my purpose. I'm mindful of what God might be up to that through me and by me and and, and obedience to God, my light might shine and my impact might be felt. Colossians 3, Paul says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Even though you work for men, you work for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord, you receive your inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul says, keep alert. Peter says, be mindful. This is what the helmet of salvation speaks of. Our determination should always be serving and honoring God. Letting our Christian virtues impact our world, even if, even if it costs us. And sometimes it will cost you because our world, again, it's like positive against a positive. There's a, there's a ne- rejection of our polarity. But what does Paul tell us? What does Peter tell us? This is our God-given Purpose and, and, and what may cost us could mean gain for the world through our subjection, our submission and our service lives could be and will be transformed. There are some of us and it's churches, it's the church's fault for conditioning us otherwise who hear Peter's commands, we roll our eyes and we say, forget that, honor the emperor. I mean, I'm not gonna do that. We have freedom and we still don't wanna honor people that we don't like that are in charge of us. Hello? I'm not going to do that. I don't, yeah, Peter, Paul, who, you know, what, what did Jesus have to say? And we don't even, we even bring him into this. It gets even more convicting. There are some of us that we may resist this, but there are others of us that just don't see the point or the value. It's this kind of persistence and this kind of persistence and passion. And I think that that should be proof to us that I think our hearts have all been subtly wounded by the enemy's flames. And many of us, we fell for the lie of irrelevance. Many of us have been unpurposed. We've dismissed our faith and our calling. We lack the determination, motivation, and ambition that changed our world once and can change our world again. We lack the mindfulness and the awareness. For a lot of us, we don't see the purpose because we don't see our own immediate benefit. And that's the thing. You see that's the thing the Bible called, the Bible's called a kingdom of significance and impact that the church so often misses. Purpose is found just across the border of what makes sense to us, what initially pleases us, and what may directly benefit us. I think one of the greatest inspirations of the New Testament church had to be the story that took place during Israel's exile. Because Peter in 1 Peter actually refers to the people of God as exiles, alluding to when the Jews were exiles in Babylon. Israel had fell from its glory, lost its power and place, and people were either killed or taken captive. And maybe the greatest insult of what happened uh, in all that was what happened to the sons of Judah. 
All the would-be leaders of Israel, future kings and princes, came from David's tribe of Judah. When Babylon conquered Israel, all of the boys of Judah were taken to the imperial city and put through the Babylonian car wash, and it wasn't a good kind. It was a torturous assimilation process. Their memory was essentially wiped. The sons of Judah were taught a new language, given a new name, told to forget everything about their origin and given a new identity. Their gods were dead, their families were dead, their dreams were dead. They were now a means to a new end, the kingdom of Babylon. Their purpose was to serve the empire and exalt its emperor. And to add insult to injury, all of these boys were emasculated so that they could never reproduce, so that Judah would never have another king or so they believed. As if to say, you better pour out what you have for the glory of Babylon, your legacy dies with us. Imagine these boys that were raised with such an eternal perspective and insight, with a vision for their country and passion for their heritage. They were so close to being kings in their own nation, leaders in their own nation, and now it didn't exist anymore. And for all intents and purposes, these boys came into Babylon and they no longer were the same people that they came as. They were reprogrammed to believe and live and serve a brand new way. Brainwashed, three years worth of washing and reprogramming, they emerged with new names, new languages, and new purposes. But underneath all of that, their faith, underneath a new religion, new allegiances, new language, and new name, there was something that could not be educated out, something that could not be washed out. It was a God-given purpose. It was the breath of life breathed into their souls by their creator. And one of the boys taken in during that time was bold enough to determine in his heart that he wasn't going to fade into irrelevance. He wasn't gonna become bitter and cynical. He wasn't going to just step back and allow everything to happen without an input of his own. He was gonna be bold and be different, be bright and be better than all the rest. And you know his story. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself but that he would continue serving the living God. He thought originally he would be the future king of Judah, but he realized he had a different purpose now. It was better than that. He would serve a different king, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but God Almighty. Daniel did not live a life of rebellion or resistance in Babylon, but rather he lived a life of determination, pure from sin, motivated for God's glory. The scripture tells us that Daniel was recognized along with his peers as smarter than all the rest. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding and things that no one else did or could ever dream of. This tells me that we aren't just to resist and hide and refuse to cooperate, but that we're supposed to endure and fight and be bold and be more determined to make a difference than anyone else. It doesn't say avoid and oppose the world. It says do a better job than the next guy serving the purpose of God that he's given you in this world. Daniel actually outlasted the kingdom of Babylon. And when the Persians conquered, Daniel was the only official that wasn't killed. Daniel 6 tells us that about 70 years later, Daniel was distinguished above all. He was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. You see, the funny thing is, if Daniel would have been a means to his own end, his story would have ended with Judah. But because his heart was wired to a greater kingdom, his purpose outlasted the earthly kingdoms. His, his is our example and Peter and Paul echo and reiterate his example. So, as we close, I, I gotta ask you, what describes your posture in our world today? 
Are you determined or discouraged? You're one of the two. And I don't blame you for being discouraged. But we've had plenty of biblical truth put before us that says we don't have to stay discouraged. And honestly, we can't remain discouraged. The Bible calls us to take up this helmet of salvation, to realize our place as ambassadors, to realize our place to be servants for the Lord's sake, to realize that we have a God-given purpose that we cannot forsake. So are you motivated? Are you aggravated? Do you watch people that make you more aggravated? Because that might be exacerbating the problem. Are you motivated or are you aggravated with this world? I don't blame you if you're aggravated, but I can't excuse you for not being motivated anymore. Are you ambitious or are you just apathetic? Have you twisted the Bible into being this idea that, well, I'm just hanging out until Jesus calls me home and I hope he does, I hope he does it soon. But until he does, there better be a kingdom ambition in all of us. Are you compassionate with, to our world? Or are you just careless? Do you just say, oh, there's nothing redeemable about this place? <laughs> Have you seen what's going on now? I've seen it. I felt it too. Have you allowed that to take away your compassion? Maybe it's, the time, it's time we quit praying for all to be as we would like it to be in our culture and society. Maybe it's time we start praying that we would be who God requires us to be. What did Paul say in Ephesians 6, 18? Be watchful with all perseverance. Peter says, be mindful. We are blessed in just a few minutes to be able to close this morning service with dedicating three children that are going to inherit the church that we leave behind for them. We are charged by God not to transform our culture, not to get mad if things don't go our way, not to carelessly go about pursuing our own selfish agendas. We are charged by God to foster the next generation so that they may be able to step into a kingdom purpose and kingdom service after us. There is no room for bitterness. There's no room or time for indifference. We must respond to God's charge over us because this is not a battle we retreat from. It's a battle we step into, knowing our purpose. And it doesn't look like the battles the world fights. It looks much different, doesn't it? And if it's in the margins we exist, then it's in the margins we can endure. And it's from the margins God's kingdom will emerge. For his honor and for his glory. Don't believe the lie of irrelevance. Don't forfeit your purpose. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. This world may feel like it has you in chains, but God has you on a mission. You serve the living God and what an awesome opportunity that is. What will you do with it? What are you doing with it? We're gonna have one last song together. Maybe somebody wants to step out and say, I'm trading that discouragement and that cynicism, that bitterness, trading all that in for what God has for me. I'm gonna be determined and motivated and ambitious with the kingdom of God's agenda in mind. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you for this amazing crowd of people that have allowed your word to speak to them and wash over them. Lord, if there's anybody in the house today that they need uh, to, to accept this call and, and actually they need to admit and repent of throwing in the towel. They need to step back up and step into this battle that you've got for them. Lord, would you, all, would you bless us with motivation, with determination, with ambition? Would you bless us with a spirit of peace and confidence that we might purpose in our hearts to go into the world and be the light that you've called us to be? We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.